Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. This talk comes from the ANU College of Physical and Mathematical Science. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I want to start by thanking um, my hosts here, who are Hugh O'Neill and Jörg Herman, and also my old friend Steve Eggins, and my new friend Penny King, who welcomed me so much here. I also want to say what a total honor it is to be at ANU. This is a place that I feel has shaped my own career, and it's a super thrill to walk down the hallowed halls where I can hear the hum of green and ringwoods piston cylinders, and um, even walk by uh, Ross Taylor's office and think about the chemical fingerprints that he established for the continental crust uh, through looking at sediments. Uh, both of these aspects of science have shaped my career. I've spent most of my career interested in how the mantle melts and also how sediments are recycled to form the continental crust at subduction zones. And so it is a special, it is a special thrill to be here at ANU where a lot of that started. Um, but I'm not talking about that today. Um, today I want to talk about work that I've been doing in the past few years, which is really aimed at why some eruptions are more explosive than others, looking at the explosivity of volcanic eruptions. So I'm starting with the image that's been on the advertisement. Uh, Mary Ann King picked this out, the philosophy manager, because it's a very beautiful eruption. And um, we think different things when we think of volcanic eruptions. There's certainly nothing wrong with a pretty picture of, of magma getting tossed, tossed into the air. And um, it's kind of mesmerizing to watch magma flung into the air, thinking how hot it is, how viscous it is, how rapidly it quenches into a black volcanic rock, this ooze coming out of the ground. So this is clear, clearly a fissure eruption uh, at Hawaii. But explosive eruptions really don't have any lava that you can see, okay? So these are not the explosive eruptions. The explosive eruptions look like this. They're roiling clouds of gas and ash that move faster than you can run unless you've got a good head start. Um, they're, they're, they're really the most dangerous things that volcanoes put out. These pyroclastic flows can asphyxiate, um, incinerate everything in their path, everyone in their path. Um, so these are the explosive eruptions, and there's no lava in sight for these. Okay, the ash, though, is, of course, quenched magma that's such a fine uh, grain size that it's um, frozen, frozen glass shards. So why do some volcanoes look like this and others look like that? Why are some eruptions more explosive than others? It's a simple question that that's what we're going to explore today. And um, to explore this question, we first have to quantify what explosivity means. And there's a lot of ways to do this, but I'll just show you one of them, which is the volcanic explosivity index, which much like the earthquake uh, magnitude scale is a order of magnitude scale with numbers that go more or less from zero to, to eight. Um, it's different from the earthquake magnitude scale. Um, a magnitude seven earthquake happens every month or so. A magnitude seven volcanic eruption happens every 500 or 1,000 years or so. 
We've all lived through several magnitude nine earthquakes. Nobody's ever lived through a magnitude nine volcanic eruption. So the numbers are a little different. And also um, for earthquakes, you actually measure something on a seismogram or a seismometer to get the moment magnitude of the earthquake. For a volcanic eruption, it's much more qualitative. Uh, there's a volume, maybe the volume of lava versus ash, as I showed you. There's the height of the eruptive column, and then how long the eruption went on. And there's a few other more subjective factors that go into how large a volcanic eruption is. But um, I'll, let you, I'll let you look for yourself at the, we'll move up the magnitude scale, because I know you're here, it's four o'clock, you want to hear some, see some pictures of volcanic eruptions before I start showing you endless plots of geochemistry. So um, this, is, this is a VEI zero to one. Again, it's a, it's a logarithmic scale, uh, a non-explosive volcanic eruption. This is a curtain of, of lava gushing out of a crack in the ground at Kilauea, which erupted for almost continuously for 30 years like this in different kinds of fire fountains and curtains and, and some, a few more explosive puffs. But by and large, non-explosive, and it's pretty much a tourist destination. Like volcanism is a big part of tourism on Hawaii. But actually 500 years ago, Hawaii had explosive ash eruptions. So even Hawaii has changed uh, eruptive styles. This is a VEI one or two, so this is much like the the uh, volcano that I showed in the beginning, which was Sakurajima. This is uh, Anak Krakatoa, which has grown up in the middle of the giant caldera that formed the, from the eruption of Krakatoa. This is a Strombolian eruption, which involves these kind of ballistic missiles of, of magma that quench into volcanic bombs. Uh, they'd probably hurt if they hit you, if they hit you on the head, um, but you could, you could observe this from a fairly safe distance. In fact, I watched Sakurajima uh, erupt. If anyone was at the IABSI meeting last year in Japan, you saw the eruption uh, during the meeting, it was amazing. Uh, this is a VEI two or three. This is a Natahan, an island in the Marianas Islands. It actually had not erupted prehistorically until my graduate student visited it and helped put a seismometer on it. And she took this picture sailing away after they'd sampled it and put a seismometer on it. It started erupting for a couple years. Um, it wasn't the seismometer, it was... <laughs> Uh, but it did a good job recording the event. Uh, so you don't see lava. This eruption produced no lava, no red rock, only ash. Um, you wouldn't want to be on the island. Uh, it's a total ash explosive eruption. This is a VEI-4, and this uh, example of this would be the famous um, eruption of Montpellier on the island of Martinique, which in one minute killed everybody in the town of Saint-Pierre. 29,000 people died in a few minutes with a direct hit from a particularly hot and fast-moving pyroclastic flow. Um, of course, as the story goes, the only person who survived was in a prison, which, which uh, protected him. A VEI-4 eruption is uh, when things become uh, newsworthy. This was not the largest eruption of the last century, but it was the most devastating. A VEI-5 would be another one, Mount Vesuvius, that incinerated a town, Pompeii. Um, and here there's a much larger vertical sustained eruption column usually uh, that was first described by Pliny the Younger who was looking and describing this eruption uh, in, in AD 79. This is obviously a painting. <laughs> um, but a VEI-5 produces um, new real estate. So it's large enough that at least there's a cubic kilometer of new material that comes out. Um, this is an actual plinium a photograph of a Plinian column. This is Pinatubo, the largest eruption of the last century, a VEI-6. 
uh, eruption. And when they're this large, they affect global climate. So there was a lot of interest in what Pinatubo did to global climate in the years following the eruption and the measurable cooling that, hap that happened around the globe due to the aerosols put into the atmosphere. I'm skipping seven, but that would be Tambor. I'm going right to VEI-8, which would be the supervolcano eruption, which we're waiting to happen so that it, we destroy everyone in the United States. Uh, uh, at least in the past, uh, the, there's been ash that has covered the, the, at a continental scale. Uh, the last large eruption was several hundred thousand years ago. Um, uh, eruption of this size has never been experienced by us. The last one of this size was around 26,000 years ago in New Zealand in the Taupo, the Taupo uh, caldera. And there's a lot of speculation as to what would happen if a volcano this size erupted and whether it would be uh, a doomsday scenario and the end of humankind. Okay, so that's the full range from a tourist site till the end of all humankind. And so we, it behooves us to really understand why there's this range in, a, in explosive eruptive activity. Um, and you probably think you know the answer sitting there. You're saying, sure, Mount St. Helens, big eruption, there's a lot of gas, and it's a viscous high silica magma. And uh, that's a subduction zone volcano, there's lots of water. Iceland, that's a hot spot volcano, it's hot, it doesn't have much gas, it's low silica, a low viscosity magma. This is what the textbooks tell you, but you'd be surprised how this, none of that has been tested. So what the textbooks tell you is that volatiles and viscosity are the drivers for explosive eruptions. So volatiles would be species like water, CO2, sulfur, chlorine, and fluorine, which uh, exsolve, so initially they're dissolved in the magma, they exsolve as bubbles into a vapor phase, and those bubbles are what provide the buoyancy and the fuel for magma to ascend and disperse. That's the eruption. Viscosity is what tells the bubbles what to do, so how, st how stif uh, sticky or stiff uh, the magma is, how much it resists flow or dissipates momentum. There's a lot of ways to describe viscosity, but it has something to do with uh, temperature to first order, that high temperature magmas have low viscosity, just like honey in the kitchen, and how silica also has an effect because silica in melts builds, builds chains and, and polymers and structure to the melt that uh, leads it to be, have more strength. Um, and these parameters generally go together in magmatic systems that uh, high temperature magmas tend to have low silica, so these parameters combine to make low viscosity. Okay, I'm not gonna focus on viscosity much in this talk. I'm gonna try to take that out as a parameter by focusing on uh, one kind of eruption that has more or less similar temperature in silica, which are basaltic volcanoes, basaltic andesite volcanoes, which, contrary to what you think, can be quite explosive. So these are two eruptions of basalt, of magma that has roughly the same viscosity. They're hot, they have low silica. And one is a VEI2 eruption, and one is two orders of magnitude larger. Etna has had Plinian, subplinian eruptions several times in its history. And so um, you're sitting there again saying, well, I know Hawaii's a dry, hot spot magma, and Etna is a wet subduction zone magma. So yes, we think maybe this is, we're isolating the effect of gas as a parameter. So what, is, what does the gas do? And I like to show, uh, uh, a seltzer bottle analogy. Okay, in New York we call this seltzer. Here it's called sparkling water. I'm trying. <laughs> My Australian accent really stinks. It's 
more South African, I think. Anyway, um, sparkling water. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. So it erupts. So it makes a, it, it was not bad. Seltzer like hits the fourth row. So this was called lightly sparkling water from Mount Franklin. So of course, what you do when you take the cap off a seltzer bottle, whether you shake it or not, um, it's, when, 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 the, when the, the water's under pressure, CO2 is dissolved into the water. Uh, when you remove the cap and release the pressure, solubility goes down dramatically. CO2 exolves into bubbles and uh, produces the eruption as it expands out the, cap, out the top, um, dispersing the liquid. So an eruption is when you have more gas than liquid, and the liquid's broken into fragments. So it's actually quite a good ana analogy for a volcanic eruption. It's a little different because, again, most magma systems, uh, water is the dominant volatile species. Water is the dominant volatile species that exolves in the interesting region of a few kilometers before the surface. And yes, so how this might work on Earth is that uh, we have magma ascending from the mantle. It's naturally buoyant. Even without the bubbles, it's ascending. And on the right here is showing you what the solubility curve for water is in magmas, or just the bubble curve. You can think of it that way. Magma might ascend with maybe 6% water. We know there's a lot of water in magma in some magmas. It's all dissolved in the, in the, in the melt until it reaches saturation. That's what the solubility line is. And it, then it exolves as a vapor that makes bubbles. And then as it continues to rise, it's constrained at least at equilibrium, to lie along the solubility curve and exalt more and more and more bubbles and have less and less in the melt until the melt's almost zero and we have an abundance of bubbles that propels the liquid out the vent and it goes kaboom. Um, so again, the seltzer bottle, we, we release the pressure by taking the cap off. In Earth, magma naturally decompresses as it rises and, uh, and reaching low and lower pressure, less overburdened. Uh, closer to the surface of the Earth. So this ha decompression happens naturally as magmas rise. So it's not hard to imagine if something came out of the mantle with only 1% water, that it would generate fewer bubbles and, and fizzle. And so that's what we'd like to test, that, that just simple notion that the amount of water that magmas contain before they erupt controls uh, their uh, explosive potential. But it's not that easy, actually, to figure out how much water magmas contain before they erupt. It's like trying to know how much CO2 is in the seltzer bottle before you open the cap. Once you open the cap, it's gone. And the same thing with the, with the rock. It's just full of holes where the volatiles used to be. And so we have to be a little bit more clever than that to figure out how much water was, was in magmas before they erupted. We'd like to have a little messenger that went in there and, and encapsulated an aliquot of the magma at high pressure before it degassed. And so that's what we try to do by looking at melt inclusions, little inclusions of melt that are trapped inside crystals. So again, this would be the uh, decompression, degassing curve for a magma at high pressure, deep in the earth. It may have 4% water. As it rises, it exhales water vapor, and so when it erupts, it's gone. CO2 I've included here also, just to, so you can see that CO2 has even lower solubility so that magmas really will degas virtually all of their CO2 and be degassing it probably throughout most of the crust, um, even before water starts degassing. So CO2 is kind of hopeless. But at least with water, if we're at this part of the curve before the magma's lost its water, if there's a crystal that grows, and we look for olivine because it's the first crystal to form in most of these magma systems at highest pressures and temperatures, 
it might accidentally enclose some of the melt. This is complete accident and, the, and luck, these inclusions. And, um, and then it erupts and the melt quenches to glass, but it's been kept at pressure inside the crystal and not developed a bubble. And so we could analyze that little bit and find out how much water it had in it before it degassed. So uh, these melt inclusions have been extensively studied. Probably the past 10 years, there's been a big burst of activity studying these little tiny inclusions just for this purpose, because we've also finally had the microbeam techniques that we've needed to be able to analyze um, these small inclusions, like ion probes and FTIR. Nice equipment that you have here. Um, this is a gallery of melt inclusions. Some have very scalloped textures. Some look like they have negative crystal shapes. Others look like they're clearly leaking. So we avoid ones that look like they're leaking and that have large bubbles in them. We go for ones that are naturally glassy, have no crystals, few bubbles at, at all, no cracks. Um, it's quite exhausting, actually. My job, aside from writing proposals and papers, is mostly to cheerlead my students and say, keep going, you're going to find another one. I had, a, I had a student who published a paper on six melt inclusions, so that's possible, and he named each one of them. <laughs> one of them he named after his mother. I'll show you Sue later. That was his mother. Um, I would be lost without Eric Howery and his wonderful ion microprobe and nanosims at the Carnegie Institution of Washington. So I work, uh, I have for 10 years now worked with Eric to analyze these little glassy inclusions. Um, we measure five volatile species simultaneously in the inclusions, water, CO2, sulfur, chlorine, fluorine. Um, these are tiny little things. They're the width of a hair. So less than, less, this is a big one. 100 microns is large. Generally, somewhere between 40 and 100 microns is enough to put an ion probe spot. That's supposed to be the square spot. An electron probe spot to measure ma major elements, like silica and magnesium. And then a big spot that, well, we often destroy the whole thing by lasering it at the end to measure the rest of the periodic table that we can. So this has really only been possible without these fantastic microbeam techniques that let us measure multiple things in a tiny little bleb of glass. Okay, the other thing that we've learned is, is that the samples are quite critical uh, to, this, to, to, to measuring anything. I think it was Steve Eggins who told me this story, that he actually recognized how great this would be to know how much water's in magmas, and he got some samples maybe from his field area that came from a lava flow, and he found melt inclusions in them, and he secretly doubly polished them and went and measured them on the FTIR while no one was looking, and he found like no water, which is quite embarrassing because it was like an arc volcano. Well, that's because uh, he thought, and we think, and we still think that lava flows cool too slowly and that water is a very furtive species and can diffuse through the crystal as a proton. A lot of people study that process here too but that that can be remarkably fast. It can happen within minutes or hours. And so lava flow samples generally have cooled too slowly for melt inclusions to have not leaked their water. So most of us have, have gone for scoria, looking for small, uh, small size uh, pyroclastic deposits, ash, lapilli. And my student, Alex Lloyd, wanted to know how large or how small we could go. Uh, he had a paper just come out last year looking at, at water loss from melt inclusions from pyroclasts of different sizes. So this was following upon some laboratory experiments that had been done putting melt, natural melt inclusions inside olivine, inside melt that had different water content and watching water diffuse in and out through the olivine in a matter of, of hours to days or even minutes. So uh, Alex actually took apart an eruption 
This is the eruption of Volcan de Fuego, which was remarkably sampled by Sam Bonus and Bill Rose every day of the eruption. So they had a wonderful sample collection that was all erupted on the same day where we had class of different sizes, the erupted ash, the erupted lapilli, which is only a, a centimeter or so, and, um, and then bombs. The bombs were small bombs, maybe six centimeters. And just through uh, understanding the conductive cooling rate of these class, how long it takes a six centimeter sphere to cool, is on the order of 10 minutes. So we looked at the melt inclusions from each of these class, and in, indeed we found that the ones inside the bombs had all lost about 30% of their water, and the smaller inclusions had lost more, which was another prediction of a diffusive model. And so this now has to guide the rest of the sampling that's done to look for small <laughs> diameter material, which we've all strived to do, but I'll tell you there's a lot of bomb data in the literature. So yes, we look for uh, deposits that are fine-grained. Ash is the best. And for this, we generally have to go into the field to collect our own samples. Most geochemists sample the lava flows. Those are nice and not weathered. Nobody picks up bags and bags of tephra and brings it home usually. Uh, they usually kick it off their shoes. So we do. All my field work now is with the army latrine shovel, I'm afraid. And we go into the field looking for ash. So these are some of the students who've worked with me. Some of them have picked their own arc and just gone at it because they're there were no published data before they did their work. Um, I'm gonna show you a little bit uh, of the Aleutians, which is my favorite place to go. This is Alaska. Here's the Aleutian Peninsula, Alaska Peninsula and the Aleutian Islands. Uh, we've studied about six of these. There's 40 historic eruptions. It's primo airspace. There's a lot of concern about volcanic eruptions of, from Alaska. Um, but to get out to something like Sea Guam, you have to get on a boat. Uh, we, we got on a, a fish and wildlife vessel at Sand Point and sailed for five days along the arc. You really believe in plate tectonics? <laughs> when you see like one volcano show up every few hours in a straight line, it's quite remarkable. Um, this is Seaguam where we were heading out to in 1977. It had an eruption, a small one, um, but nonetheless had not lots of nice scoria and ash. You can see it's lying on the ground for us to pick up, provided you could get there. We had to pay $10,000 for one day for the ship to give us a zodiac and hope that we could get ashore. The entire Pacific hits this island, and this is a beautiful day in the Aleutians. We got on shore, we scrambled up the hill, there's no trees, there's no bugs, there's nothing but volcanic rocks, it's an amazing place to go. That's the uh, ship we went in on. Here I am with Brian Jika from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, we're in a pit digging some of that black gold, that ash. Here's uh, the entire Holocene section we were rewarded by when we hiked up to the top. So this is the stuff that we go after, is the pyro our pyroclastic deposits. And then when we come home, we look for these melt inclusions inside olivine, and these are some of those data from Siguan, from that, that same eruption. Each of these is a different melt inclusion inside a different olivine from the same sample. And so the first thing you see is quite a variation in water and CO2. The blue line is, is calculated again, that degassing path I've shown a few times now where, where CO2 uh, has a lower solubility so it comes out of the vapor phase first and then water does. So that's the predicted degassing path for an ascending magma from those depths, eight kilometers, four, two. 
And you can see the melt inclusions at best are still just recording the degassing path of the magma. They're just clinging on while the magma's degassing. They're probably forming during the ascent and degassing process. In fact, the magma storage region at Siguam, based on geodetic measurements, is around seven kilometers. So this is probably where the magma storage region is, and all the inclusions are being trapped in the conduit during ascent, during the eruption. But anyway, we look at data like this and we say, well, this has at least a three and a half percent water. We think we've maxed out, you don't know, but we think we've maxed out on the degassing curve. We at least know that this magma had, had three and a half percent water. That's Siguam. Um, here's another volcano that we worked on. Another student of mine, Lauren Cooper, went on a cruise with Richard Arculus, who, yes, is right out at sea right now drilling uh, on the Southern Surveyor, and you probably know he's had several cruises along the Tonga Arc, so somewhere closer to here. The Tonga Arc's interesting because most of its, uh, most of the active volcanism is submarine, and so it did require someone to go out and dredge. This is a seafloor map of a beautiful uh, volcanic cone and a satellite cone and a fissure that separates them, and Richard took five dredges here, and this one out here turned out to uh, erupt active bonanites, which I'm not gonna explain, but those of you who are excited about them will be excited to know that they erupt within an active volcanic arc. Um, we wrote a paper on that a few years ago. And a part of it was based on the melt inclusions that we studied from that volcano. So again, these are all melt inclusions in olivine from a single sample, that submarine bonanite. This is water versus sulfur. And they're both degassing again together. So you think of this as at high pressure to low pressure. The melt inclusions are being entrapped at different pressures as the magma ascends. Again, we, we, it, this is a game of just finding the maximum. And in this case, we don't have a nice leveling off of the degassing curve like we did before. But nonetheless, these are getting trapped in very primitive olivines. These are the Forsterite contents, which are 88, 89, 92. These could be an equilibrium in the mantle. So we would argue the magma could not have degassed much water before being entrapped, or we wouldn't have these primitive olivines. So uh, we argue again in this case that four and a half is representative of the pre-eruptive magma, maybe the parental magma that fed the system. Here's another one, Irazu volcano in Costa Rica, beautiful big volcano in Costa Rica. You can see the Atlantic and the Pacific from the top. All the geochemical work that had been done previously predicted this wouldn't have much water in it. It's, an, it's a vol volcanic arc volcano that has strange um, trace elements that didn't look like it had subducted water, but in fact, it did. Um, this is Ezra's volcano. That's Sue right there that he named after his mother. So these are, um, it wasn't the highest. The highest one, again, was a primitive olivine, up the degassing curve, maybe 3% water. Okay, I'm showing this to you because it's a lot of work to extract these numbers. You gotta go out in the field and collect the rocks. You gotta bring them home and find the darn things. You gotta analyze, get time on the ion probe. And then you gotta measure 30 or 40 of them and just argue to yourself that you are getting back to the original water content. So it's, it's not an easy game. And it wasn't done at all until uh, 2000 or so. So if you uh, were back in the year 2000, there'd been maybe five or so uh, volcanoes that had been studied in this way. That is five volcanoes where we actually had any quantitative measurements at all about how much water was dissolved in the magmas before they erupted. And then in 2013, wow, so there's been a lot done on six or so different arcs. Many of these are somebody's individual thesis or a couple theses. And what we found is that arc magmas have quite a bit of water, two to six percent. 
definitely more than what erupts on the seafloor at mid-ocean ridges, which is uniformly less than a percent. Um, but what we also found was that the average from arc to arc was remarkably similar. It was almost embarrassing. For the Marianas, uh, we were measuring sort of three to five percent water, average around five. I call up my friend Paul Wallace, what are you finding in the Cascades? And he'd say, oh, like two to five, and the average is around four. So after all this work, we find out every arc has about the same average water content, which is not what we were expecting at all. And uh, just to see this in a histogram, this is the, these are the individual volcanoes, so not averaged by arc, but these are the 56 or so subduction zone volcanoes that we've, been, that we've studied in this way, just looking at the maximum water that we think is the least degassed water. And almost all of them have four plus or minus one. It's pretty remarkable. And if you wanna know why, you're gonna have to read another paper because I'm not gonna tell you about it here. Because I don't think we quite know. It's either set in the crust by where magmas stall. If they stall around six kilometers, that's water saturation with 4% water or it could be set in the mantle. Water can actually have a negative feedback on melting and produce magmas that have very similar concentration. So there you go, that's the, that's the quick abstract. But you could grab the paper and look at it. We put up two possibilities, we don't really know. But it's really bad news for the volcano explosion game. If every volcano has the same amount of water, then why do they erupt so differently? You know, Sea Guam, we just went there. You, we, I took you there. We went a lot of work. We found out that it's got three and a half percent water. Fuego, my student just spent a whole thesis on Fuego. He's dead sure it has four. Every single melt inclusion from an ash has four. So we know what these have before they erupt, three to four percent water. Sure, this one's a little bit less than that one, but this is a three order of magnitude less explosive eruption. I don't think this tiny amount of water, which is probably plus or minus one anyway, can all explain this difference in volcanic behavior. So, which is good in science, right? When you find out something doesn't work. But it also kind of stinks because you have to go back to the drawing board. So we'll go back to the Italian seltzer this time. <laughs> Let's see how it does. So right, the, you know, the physics of opening a seltzer bottle are not that difficult. You can open it up and have it spray all over yourself or you can be slightly smart about it, right? I used to like give my dad a beer. He said, hey, bring me a beer. I'd go in the kitchen, shake it up. <laughs> so he learned how to open all of his beers like this, you know? So you can definitely stop a volcanic eruption if you, oh, Jesus, I have nothing in it anyway, if you release the cap slowly. So there has to be a rate term, right? The decompression rate has to be pretty important. You can kill an eruption depending on how you decompress it. It tastes pretty good though. So um, eruption dynamics have to come down to either the fuel, and you do need a volatile fuel. You're not gonna make an explosive eruption with no volatiles. But you can definitely um, degas a magma and kill the eruption based on what you do with the bubbles. And so the literature is full of bubble dynamics studies. This is what people study when they study eruption dynamics. So, but you know, until I think we looked at these 60 volcanoes, we, did, we couldn't rule out that the volatiles were important, at least variations in volatile, primary volatiles important, and I just, I just don't think they are. I think it's how the volatiles get out, so how the bubbles nucleate, how they are allowed to grow or not, or coalesce, and how they migrate ahead of the liquid. So in a magma system again, we're looking just at the very top here where magmas uh, 
start to degas their water. They nucleate bubbles. Some of the bubbles can grow, but if there isn't enough time, they can't grow. Some can coalesce, but if there isn't enough time, they can't coalesce. Um, they may escape if, if the decompression is slow. So you can get a sense that the decompression rate is important in this, how rapidly magmas ascend, because that's governing the decompression rate. So how, what does the magma rise? And um, there's a lot of ways that this can affect the dynamics. Um, I'll show you a couple. One is just the glass of beer, which we're all looking forward to pretty soon, um, and how bubbles can just migrate in a very slowly moving magma. Okay, at the limit, it's a glass of beer sitting there not moving at all, and the bubbles will just stream out of it and degas the liquid. They form a foam, which is quite interesting, and people have studied foams too, but, but the bubbles are moving faster than the liquid and therefore degas the melt, and that this magma down here would be completely degassed and erupt oozing on the ground as a non-explosive lava flow. Um, even more interesting things happen once you start moving the system faster than a, than a glass of beer or even slowly and keep it a bubbly flow. If you move magma and, uh, and uh, vapor together rapidly and you mess around with how much vapor you have, you can actually push yourself into different flow regimes. There can be things called slug flow where you form giant bubbles these are, might be what propel those Strombolian eruptions that have big ballistic magma. Um, the bubbles and, and melt can coalesce in an unsteady flow. This might be what produces Hawaiian eruptions. This would be a higher flow rate overall and maybe a higher uh, gas flow rate. And then annular flow is when you have mostly gas with lots of droplets through the whole column, and that could be a Plinian eruption. It's not clear this is right. These are experiments that are done in oil and water. Um, but there is an indication that small differences in flow rate, in how many bubbles you have, and friction on the walls, and the turbulence of the flow can push you into completely different flow regimes. So it's a complex system, like most in Earth science are, that there are small differences that can push you into different dynamic behavior. And then finally, there's a very classical way that um, decompression rate can affect what you form, what kind of bubbles you form. And that is the decompression rate is driving the supersaturation pressure. So if you decompress so rapidly that you supersaturate the system, and then it finally catches up by having tons of nucleation spots of bubbles. That's how nucleation works. And so the nucleation density goes up. And you can see that visually in certain eruptions. Here's Kelawaiiki, uh, nice big fat bubbles. Here's the Etna subplinian eruption. Again, both basalts. Okay, this one had more water, but mostly you can see it's got lots and lots and lots of tiny bubbles that are poorly shaped. And at the limit, these can't grow because there's so many nucleation points that pressure can build up. Or this will fragment into tiny little ash particles that are then drifted aloft in a plume. So this also can create very different eruptions from a different decompression rate. So, how do we measure these decompression rates? If that's what we need to do, we know how fast, how fast magma rises to produce these different behaviors. And so you can kind of intuit how fast your clock has to be if we want to develop a clock. Let's start with the VEI, which you know, three, four, seven, big orders of magnitude changes in the explosive potential, or the, what's measured. David Pyle has related this to the mass eruption rate, just the mass that comes out per second that that can be scaled to the VEI directly. Um, Kathy Cashman has related that to the decompression rate. You can just um, 
assume a certain pipe and you measure what's coming out the pipe at some speed, well, you can put it back in the pipe and measure how fast it has to come up the pipe per pipe diameter. So for a 10 meter conduit, these would be the decompression rates. And she's related those to these different eruptive styles we've talked about. And then just by applying density, you can come up with an ascent rate of meters per second from megapascals. And we're talking things like 10 meters per second for explosive eruptions. Um, and if we're coming from four to seven kilometers depth, then this is minutes. So we need a clock that works over minutes, hours, days. And um, yeah, there's not much that works that quickly in geology. This is basically the fastest chronometer in geology. And it's based on a concept of diffusion. Consider the Turkey experiment. So this is uh, Phil England, Peter Molnar, and Frank Richter wrote a, a cute paper in Physics Today explaining why Lord Kelvin was wrong in his estimate of how old the Earth was just from uh, thermal conduction, uh, thermal diffusion and heat conduction. And they did it with the turkey. So you take a turkey and you put it in the oven and you have it reach one temperature and then you stick it in an ice box. Um, but I realize a turkey is not the right, this is the American icon, so I'm gonna switch this to a kangaroo <laughs> filet so you can understand this better. So you take your kangaroo filet and you put it in the bavi and you get it up to 80 degrees C, so let's heat it up uniformly, so it's cooked inside, it's all the same temperature. Then you stick it in the perfect ice box that's gonna be zero C, and what's gonna happen, it's gonna cool off, but it's just gonna be the edges that cool off. And if you know the thermal diffusivity of kangaroo, then you could calculate the time scale. And if you wait 80 minutes, then you would see the, it cool further into the kangaroo state. This is actually much better, it's like a nice planar solution to the turkey. Um, this is how people, of course, figure out how long bodies have been dead, also by measuring the thermal gradients as in going into a body, okay? So that's what this is about. This is the thermal gradient, the temperature gradient going into a body. So this is, um, this is, this is a thermal diffusion. Um, and of course, this is also in homage to uh, John Jaeger, who wrote the book on conduction of heat in solids. Maybe he didn't consider kangaroo but it's probably not that different from water. What I'm going to do, though, is talk about uh, chemical diffusion. So it's the same concept, um, but it's better because chemical diffusion happens at magmatic temperatures and length scales that we can measure. Then it's frozen in when the system cools, and you can preserve chemical zonation for millions of years in a volcanic class. You don't have to go and catch the kangaroo while it's still hot. So we're gonna look at chemical diffusion and we're gonna look at the fastest substances or the fastest species that move through the fastest substances. The fastest thing is probably water in a basaltic liquid. So water in a basaltic liquid over five, 50 to 500, so hundreds of microns uh, will migrate on the order of minutes. So in the time that's gonna take me to finish this slide, water will have diffused 100 microns. And if we could measure that, then we're gonna have a chronometer that works on the time scale of how fast I'm clicking the slides. Um, nickel and olivine is slower. There's been some really nice work done here in, in Hugh O'Neill's lab on that. Maybe that's a year time scale. If we look at different species, water and CPX, we're trying to figure out chlorine and basalt. So we could access a range of time, whoops. Uh-oh, I really hit the wrong slide. There we go. Um, we can access different time scales. So we're gonna look at water, CO2, fluorine, chlorine, and sulfur and we should be able to get it minutes, hours, days. Time scale is very relevant to volcanic eruptions. 
And we're going to look at um, these chemical species preserved in glass tubes. So these are much like melt inclusions, but they're tubes. And the idea is that sometimes olivine, even more accidentally than the melt inclusion, if it forms an inclusion that doesn't close and it leaves it as an open tube, we're gonna call that an embayment. That's an embayment into the olivine. Um, this is gonna happen at depth when this is still magmatic, this is still liquid, and this is surrounded by liquid, and it's all in equilibrium. And then as it rises with the system, the exterior magma is going to vesiculate, gonna form all these bubbles. Um, there's often a bubble at the outlet, so we look for that, but there's no bubbles inside the embayment. So the water wants to get into the bubble, all the volatiles wanna get into the bubble. The only way it can do that in the embayment is to diffuse to the closest bubble. And if that's hundreds of microns away, we may catch the process. What this looks like inside the embayment, so this would be distance along that embayment from its inside to the outside, so the bubbles here. Initially, it's gonna have lots of water at depth. Then as the system rises, the exterior starts to drop in water as more water goes to bubbles. That will happen very quickly, and this is how the embayment's gonna try to catch up. So after five minutes of ascent at a certain rate, the exterior magma may have three and a half percent water, but the embayment hasn't caught up, and it doesn't catch up as the system continues. If we stopped it here for a few hours, the embayment would, would equilibrate with 2% water. But if it keeps ascending at the same rate, it will look like this. And if we can come along, then it clenches and erupts, we can measure what the profile is. If it looks like that, then we'll know that it took nine minutes to ascend from 10 kilometers depth at a certain decompression rate. That's what we're gonna try to do. And we're gonna try to do that with the nanosims. Uh, and I think this is a novel measurement. I don't think anyone else has done this. This is, again, thanks to Eric Howery. Uh, this is a reflected light image of olivine. And uh, this is the embayment, which is now glass. There's the bubble at its outlet. And each one of these squares is a nanosim spot, five micron spot, where we're measuring all five volatile species. There's the microprobe spot. We're making sure this is homogeneous in its major elements, which it is, up to the bubble little bit around the bubble. And we're gonna look at Fuego again, where we already worked on the melt the fully enclosed inclusions, so we know what they look like. So we can compare these that are leaking. And we have samples that have risen and cooled quickly. Um, here are the four embayments that we found. Even harder to find, nice straight embayments that haven't crystallized, have a bubble at the outlet, or nominally one-dimensional um, in olivine. And this is what we found. So this is looking at a profile, like those fake ones that I was showing you. Here's the inside of the embayment. Here's the outlet. This is water, CO2, sulfur, and fluorine. They all have different profiles. It's quite interesting. So water's the fastest diffuser. You would expect it to have the steepest gradient. But it doesn't have as low solubility as CO2. CO2's a slower diffuser, but remember, CO2's degassing the whole way through the crust, whereas water doesn't till kind of the upper crust. So that's why CO2 has such a strong gradient. Sulfur has a solubility much like water, but it's a much slower diffuser, so it doesn't have as steep of a profile. And fluorine has a very high solubility. It doesn't even degas from this magma. The ground mass has the same as this embayment. Imbasalt, it has a high solubility. It's worse than that because all the fully enclosed melt inclusions have 4% water, which is way up here. So we know even the inner part of the embayment has dropped. So how do we, how do we model all this? And um, this came out this week, very timely, um, Alex's work again. Here's all four embayments that you saw, water, CO2, sulfur. And we're able to fit 
all four of these embayments in water with the same decompression rate, nominally, 0.3 to 0.5 megapascals per second. And the same decompression rate that we use to explain water, which starts way up here and has diffused down this far, we can actually use to explain sulfur, which has a two order of magnitude, slower diffusivity, and uh, we don't think the inside has been affected by diffusion, it's just this boundary layer. You see we do a pretty good job of fitting red and orange and green. Blue goes uphill, so we can't fit that one. But the same model, we can fit both. That's what gives us some confidence that two different volatile species are converging to give us the same answer. The CO2 we don't fit as well, and we have a lot more free parameters about where it starts. But Alex also didn't think the fit was quite right, and that this requires a slower stage to make this plateau and then a fast stage. So he developed a two-stage model, and you can see it's not too crazy, because CO2 comes out way before water does anything with pressure. So you can have this come out at a slow rate and have the water come out at a higher rate. And that's what this acceleration path is like. So three meters a second speeding up to 10 meters a second under fuego. I don't think I pointed this out, 10 minutes. This is basically, in 10 minutes, the magma's rising from about 10 kilometers depth. It's really fast, okay? So that's how fast magma's moving prior to eruption. And we can put it back on this figure that I showed you to see if it's at all reasonable. So the decompression rates that we were measuring were 0.3 to 0.5 megapascals per second. They actually put us in the subplinian field. This is a subplinian eruption. 10 meters a second, that's about right. A VEI, four, well, it's not quite right. Well, this, you know, this diagram is notional more than anything. The point is we have about two data points to put on this diagram right now. There's Mount St. Helens, which John Blundy's group worked on. They were only able to model water, and they proposed two minutes to ascend from six or seven kilometers depth, 50 meters a second. VEI-5 eruption. Fuego, I just showed you, 10, maybe 30 minutes, and the out, 10 meters per second. So uh, if you wait a year, I'll tell you what Seaguam's gonna be like. The VEI-1 eruption, we predict this will much have a much slower ascent rate. And that the ascent rate may be what relates to explosivity more than the initial volatiles. So uh, what we're doing next, we actually are working on Kilauea Iki also, another VEI-1 eruption. We found embayments we're gonna measure, and we've measured what look like much slower ascent rates for that eruption. Um, and we're also trying to develop clinopericene as a clock. These melt inclusions and embayments are so hard to find. If we could just use the crystals themselves and the diffusion of water through crystals as a chronometer, it'd be much easier to prepare. But of course, the concentrations are very low. Clinopericene's anisotropic, and it's got all sorts of crazy places for water to sit. Well, that's what Elizabeth is working out. And Alex is using Fuego to ground truth her experiments. And so uh, we hope that this is an exciting time in looking at volcanic eruptions where we actually have constraints on the volatile contents and we're developing constraints on the ascent rates to find out why some eruptions are more explosive than others. Thank you. It's time for a few questions before that beer that Terry <laughs> degasses before it degasses. Right. Oh, John, you've come from Adelaide to ask a question. Awesome. Do we wait? Wait for the microphone, maybe, so everyone can hear you. 
Is there any correlation between your calculated um, ascent rates using this methodology and the rate of migration of earthquake swarms during? Oh, let me think about that for a second. The earthquake swarms I know are mostly looking at the magma coming under the plumbing, or under the storage region. So we have been working on that, that Kilauea-Iki had an earthquake swarm in the mantle three months prior to it erupted. And we think that month's time scale, and, and their area of Eyjafjallajökull in Iceland, there is migrations over weeks, but in the lower crust. So I think earthquakes have been good at seeing migration of magma kind of filling the magma system. But you know this is happening in minutes. I'm not certain we're looking at that rate. Maybe someone else knows the answer to that. I'm not aware. Yeah. Thanks, Terry, for a very nice talk. Uh, my question is about uh, the mineral clocks. Um, given that most of your inclusions are in olivine, did you consider to look at the diffusion of water through olivine and use that as clocks? Right, um, and someone has done that. Uh, Marion Lebouillet, uh, a French postdoc from Caltech, had a paper that came out this year where she mapped water distribution with the nanosims, again, around a melt inclusion. And she saw it was anisotropic, and she tried to come up with rates that were similar to this. They were you know, meters a second ascent rates. Um, but it's hard. <laughs> you, know, you, you know it's olivine, and you're measuring uh, you know, one to 10 parts per million. Um, so yeah, we've got that in a proposal to try. But clonopyroxene is easier. There's hundreds of parts per million. And you know, it's more abundant in more kinds of eruptions. It's sturdier. You can do thermometry on it, thermobarometry on it. So yeah, we're working on, uh, on clinopyroxene right now. But olivine uh, has promise, if you understand the diffusivity. So that's the other thing, right, which could be complicated, depending upon where the water's sitting, what site. Yeah. Question up the back. That's why glass is easier. You know, we do understand better the diffusivity of these species in glass and melt. Thank you. I was wondering if there's any correlation with the differences in the nucleation sites, because if you have different nucleation centers forming, have you looked at the different for, materials that are there? For bubbles or for? Yeah, for forming the bubbles. Um, I'm not an expert on this. So we are collaborating with, with uh, Bruce Houghton and his group to look at the bubble number densities and the bubble distributions. Um, you know, I know the work he's done in Hawaii definitely finds different bubble populations. Some of them are enlarging in the column and some of them are forming uh, in the conduit. I'm certain it's uh, complicated, but I don't have a really clear answer yet of how the bubbles are gonna relate to ascent more than just the nucleation density argument I made, which which I think is robust. I think, I think you can measure different bubble number densities, and people have always suspected this has to do with the ascent rate. So what we can hope to do is try to put those data sets together. Yes, sir. Yeah, wait, wait, wait for the mic, oh, unless you're gonna be really loud. Okay. You've been looking at basaltic conditions. What about rhyolitic? Yeah, I, I showed Mount St. Helens, so that's a day site. Um, and you know, that was, that was done by another group. Um, 
Rhyolites and dacites are great. I'm hoping other people are working on those. We just started on basalts and basaltic andesites because that's what we've been working on anyway to characterize the water contents of arc magmas is looking at the parental magmas. We figure this is what's, which, uh, what's uh, priming the system and most of the eruptions in subduction zones are basaltic andesites. So it's why you know, ones that are happening this week, if you're looking at what the 10 out of 15 volcanoes that are erupting this week are, they're basaltic andesite eruptions. They're not the big ones. So yeah, if you want to work on the supervolcanoes, um, you'd want to look at rhyolites. But there the rheology is much more complicated of the liquid. Why would the rates of ascent change so it's dramatically? It's Jim Ogg. Oh, God. Yeah. The audience full of interesting people. Why would the rates of ascent be different? So, yeah, that's, I know. Um, we're not quite there. Let's, let's measure them first, and then we'll be able to propose why they're different. But ideas are, it could be something as simple as the conduit radius, which we really don't have a good handle on. But all the conduit models need this. So. If you look at the discharge rate and our ascent rates, we ought to at least understand what the conduit radius is. But then there can be overpressure in the magma chamber because there's not stuff coming out at the same rate that it's coming in. And so that can ultimately be driven by magma supply. So magma supply is probably what's, dri what's driving a part of it. We know uh, at Hawaii there is this big mantle surge event that happened that corresponded to geodetic and seismic anomalies at the Moho, really. And it was proposed that this was a surge of magma that came from the Moho. It's a burp of CO2 and sulfur feeding the system. So I think one possibility is it's really a supply-driven phenomenon. But you know, we're not there yet. <laughs> Give us a chance to see if the ascent rate's interesting or not, and then we'll figure out why it varies from place to place. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.